Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in Studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. Hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us in this Live Inspired movement. We have a remarkably impressive guest today. Her name is Mel Robbins. She is a serial entrepreneur. She's a best-selling author. She's internationally recognized in her role as a social media influencer. She's one of the most sought-after motivational speakers in the world, and her digital platform inspires, listen to this one, more than 20 million people every month with transformative videos, articles, positive psychology research, inspiring content, and much more. And in her loads, and I do mean loads of free time, she's a mother to three and a wife to one. Like I said, her name is Mel Robbins. She lives on the East Coast. Her heart remains in the Midwest. And today she's with us right here in St. Louis on the Live Inspired podcast. So my friends, Buckle up, open up your minds and your hearts to our nearest friend. Her name is Mel Robbins. Mel, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, thank you, John. I have to tell you, you are the first person who has ever described me as somebody who has been married to one person. Have you had people on this show that's been married to more than one Multiple. person? Multiple. Dozens. Yes. That's actually our, <laughs> our angling. Time. It could be. That's a different podcast, Mel. I don't want to go there right now. <laughs> Oh, gosh, what a great introduction. I'm so uh, inspired and excited to talk to you, John. Well, the, the reality is I let m the majority of your introduction hit the cutting room floor because that's what I want to unpack during this podcast. I want people to hear your heart, your research, your life, your work, and ultimately what it means for them. But for those who are not yet familiar with uh, Mel Robbins, give us a snapshot of what you do today professionally. So um, I am a author and uh, I am a motivational speaker like John. I happen to be uh, have the good fortune of being the most book female speaker in the world. And um, I run a media company with my husband and our mutual best friend, a woman named Mandy Bergen. And our media company specializes in creating content that educates, entertains, and empowers people to... Um, live a better life, launch businesses. We're in the personal development space, just like you. Mm. 
Well, I, I want to hear about this personal development space and the work that you're doing. I think, though, Mel, sometimes it's good to start at the beginning. It's been said that everybody has a story. It's just not the story we tell the world. And you you have a remarkable story that you do, in fact, tell the world. But not everybody's heard it on this podcast. So let's let's go back to Michigan. You're, you you didn't, weren't born on the East Coast. You moved there. Where where were you born? Um, I was actually born in St. Louis, or not St. Louis. You were born in St. Louis. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My dad was a uh, medical uh, student there, and my mother worked for the IRS at night while uh, my dad was in school. Real tag team effort. I grew up with two parents um, that were always kind of working together in a very traditional family. We would wait until dad got home uh, or mom got home, whomever was working late before we would have dinner. Grew up in a Methodist church and um, just had a very kind of normal childhood, I would say, except for the fact that I had I've struggled with anxiety my entire life. I mean, I think if you can be a baby that's Mm -hmm. born worrying, that was me, John. And so I was the kind of kid that even though, you know, I didn't grow up in an abusive household, I was one of the many, many people that has uh, sexual abuse in my past. It happened in fourth grade uh, with an older kid, but there was nothing abusive going on in my household. And I had a very lucky, idyllic childhood, but for the fact that I tortured myself constantly in terms of the mental game, Uh, homesick at every single camp, so homesick that I would be sent home from camp. Do you know how homesick you need to be in order to actually be sent home from camp? Um, bright red. Every time I called, I was called on in class. I would chug a bottle of milk of Melanta before any tennis match or track meet or basketball game, because I had a quote nervous stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than the anxiety, uh, just kind of a, a normal or, you know, to a brother, two parents that were married that are still married 50 years later, which is remarkable. Um, and that's it. I grew up, we went from uh, Kansas city, Missouri to, uh, Western Michigan, uh, a, a town, Muskegon, Michigan is where I was basically, mm-hmm. uh, raised. You mentioned this anxiety from, from birth. <clears throat> Mel, when did you first realize that this, that, that you were a little bit unusual in this regard, that it was this intense all the time in your life? Um, I think the time that I realized it, that there was something unusual is it wasn't until I was 21. Mm. And part of it, John, is that being a kid that worries. See, the interesting thing about, about anxiety is that it begins with the habit of worrying. And when you worry a lot, And then you worry so much that it agitates your body. Once your body gets agitated because of the worries that you have, now we're in the, we've, we've passed from, from worrying into the, the land of anxiety. And the thing about anxiety, and many of you may hate me for saying this, is that for a long time, John, I was the kind of person that said anxiety is just like diabetes. It's a disease. I'm, you know, I, 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 there's nothing I can do. I have it. It's part of my identity. I even fought with my, my loved ones about whether or not I could deal with it. And one of the reasons I, I realized that I was like that is because for many of us that have anxiety as part of our life experience, anxiety as painful as it is can really work mm. because when you have a panic attack, when you're anxious and irrational, 
it it works. It 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 either gets everybody around you to solve your problems <laughs> or it keeps you safe and it keeps you from having to do the things in life that scare you. And so I got really attached to my anxiety as a kid because I could have a panic attack and then everybody would assure me before a track meet that I would be okay. So I got all this attention and then I calmed down and, you know, I could have a panic attack because I was nervous at a camp and I was homesick, both of which are normal, by the way. And the only way that you get through them is not to medicate yourself into being a zombie, but to actually push through all those feelings. But I got so good, John, at manipulating everybody around me. Of course not. I didn't realize it consciously. I can see this looking back that um, as painful and as scary as anxiety was to experience, it was working. So there was no reason for me to get rid of it. But it got really bad um, when I was 21 years old and I was in law school and I had just broken up with a boyfriend and I was coming into um, graduation and, or excuse me, summer. This is my second year of law school. And I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do for the summer. And so I had all these unknowns stacked up in front of me. Where am I going to live? What am I going to do for my summer job? What am I going to do in terms of relationship? Who am I? And I would wake up every single morning and I would just feel doomsday. And then I would launch out of bed and I would go straight to Dunkin' Donuts and I would get a huge cup of coffee and I'd smoke a cigarette. And then I would race into class. And here I am in a law school class, high on nicotine and caffeine with nothing in my stomach but those two things, having a full-blown panic attack. Wondering and why that happened. I, yeah. And so, you know, and, and when it's not you, you can look on the outside and hear this story and be like, boy, she screwed up. Boy, no wonder she had panic attacks. But when it's you you don't unpack the self-destructive things that you're doing that seem inconsequential at the moment. You just are at the effect of all of it. And so I literally got to the point where I started to have the really, really scary end of anxiety, which is feeling like nothing is real, feeling like my law school wasn't even real, that I was just in a giant movie set. Mm -hmm. I used to have this fantasy as I was driving down the road that all of the houses that were lining the road on the drive from my apartment to the law school were just fake, like the old um, Western movie sets mm -hmm. where it was just literally like a cardboard building front. And that if, at some point they were all going to fall backwards and I would literally find myself in the middle of a desert. And that scared the hell out of me. And so um, I went to see somebody at at the law school in the health services. They then referred me to a psychiatrist. That psychiatrist said in the first interview, it's very clear that you have, you, um, you know, battle with anxiety disorder and it's now kind of affecting you 24 seven because it's gotten so bad and you've never actually talked to a therapist. You've never gotten therapy. You've never, You've never done anything to attack the patterns in the way that you think, and now it's taken over your life. And so he put me on Zoloft, and I got to tell you, John, it was a miracle drug. And for anybody listening 
that has any qualms about taking drugs, if you are in a hole that you cannot climb out of, you go see a professional. And if they tell you you should try them, you absolutely should under the supervision of a medical professional, because you can get yourself so far into a mental hole that just doing the um, kind of scaffolding and the mind game strategies that we're going to talk about today, while they will work over time, you may not be strong enough mentally mm-hmm. because the habits of anxiety or depression are so hardwired that you can't climb out. There's no shame in taking anything to help yourself, you know, when a doctor recommends it. That's my personal opinion. And so I took Zoloft and something fascinating happened. Within two weeks, John, it was literally as if somebody had taken the volume knob mm. to my brain and was able to turn to zero the part of my brain that was saying, you're worthless, this isn't real, something bad's going to happen, something's wrong with your body, what if they call on you, what if you don't get this interview, what if, what if, what if, like that what if loop that so many of us live in. And, and suddenly I felt like myself for the first time ever. And so that was extraordinarily liberating. Tell us what that was like. I mean, to come out of the the gray and into the light for the, really for the first time that you could remember, what's that like at age 21? It's literally like being in a dark bedroom and opening up the shades and realizing that there's an entire beautiful world outside and everything seems calm and clear and you can see the birds and you can hear the birds and you can see the blue sky and your mind isn't racing and thinking about all the things that are wrong and your mind isn't distracting you with the habit of thinking, what if this happens? What if that happens? I'm no good. I'm unlovable. Like all of the crap that somebody else put into your brain and that you started to repeat to yourself, it got dialed down, at least in terms of the really acute stuff. And so, you know, I was on Zoloft for over two decades. Mm. I mean, it was a real miracle drug for me. And the only time that I came off of it Um, was when our first child was born and she's now 19 and I had such debilitating postpartum depression being off of Zoloft that I actually couldn't be left alone with her for eight weeks. I mean, I had friends, we had friends that were on a rotation because I, you know, my husband and I live outside of Boston, Massachusetts now, and my parents are in Michigan and my mom came out for three weeks, but then she had to get back home and my Husband's parents came down for a week and then my friends took over the rotation so Chris could go to work because I couldn't, I actually could not be left alone. I couldn't be trusted with myself or with the baby because I was that rattled. And so when I talk about the mind game and I talk about how we torture ourselves mentally with self doubt, with anxiety, with overwhelm, with thoughts about how we're unlovable or unworthy or we're an imposter. I have lived that nightmare for a large part of my life. And so I take the work that I do, which is very much grounded in winning the mental game and teaching people all of the really amazing science around it and simple strategies that you can use so that you can win the mental game and experience all the joy and opportunity that your life has to offer. I take this stuff very seriously because I have lived the nightmare. 
I have struggled with anxiety and I can add even more on the table. It definitely is genetic. And Mm -hmm. we have three children, 19, 17 and 13, and our 17 year old and our 13 year old have had acute battles with it, too, when they were younger, kind of in the 10, 11, 12 range. And so the strategies that we're going to talk about today work and they change people's lives. And um, the one thing that I want you to walk away from this conversation that John and I are having is this, that you aren't stuck Mm. with the way that you think. And it's not just a matter of thinking positively. When you embrace the idea that somebody else wrote your past, somebody else wrote in the thinking patterns that you have in your own mind, but you, you can write your own future and you can break those habits and those patterns um, that you think in, your entire life will change and you will truly be free. And so I want you to understand that, you know, the things that you feel the patterns that you have experienced in your past, you know, that that's out of your control. But what you think about is 100% something you can choose moving forward, especially when you understand the science and how things get encoded in your brain. Mel, when, when I was nine, and you know the story, I was burned on my entire body and the community came around us, supported us and guided the little boy forward physically. When yep. my father's Parkinson was diagnosed 26 years ago, the community came around us and supported us in all ways they possibly could. And yet in my family and in my wife's family and in the families of the people that I know and love dearly and deeply, and I know their stories, I also know that there's a lot of anxiety and depression and bipolar and personality challenges that we all face. And we don't talk about it. We don't We don't whisper about it. So I, I'm, I'm going to ask you secondly, Why is that? But my first question is, when did you begin to take it, not only the way you felt out of the shadows, but even the fact that you'd been in the shadows? When did you when did you take that into the light? How liberating was that? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's what my whole career is about, honestly. I mean, if you think about it, nobody's going to hire me to come in and give a speech about anxiety and depression and suicide. (laughs) But that's honestly (laughs) what I talk about, because I'm talking about the mental game. And the other thing that I will tell uh, for everybody listening the, the, you're not alone. I mean, yesterday in Time Magazine, they published a study, depression is up 33% over last year. Anxiety is up 60% in the last five years. The rise in the number of our children who are experiencing anxiety is um, almost tripled based on reports from the American Pediatric Association. And, you know, I see it firsthand in the book lines that we have at our after our speeches, in the emails that we're getting. The number one topic that people write to us about is fear and anxiety. And so you're not alone if you feel agitated in your body and if you spend too much time dwelling on what could go wrong. That's all that anxiety is, by the way. Anxiety, you know, we it's a big, scary word, but it's actually something very small. Anxiety is just when your body gets on edge. That's it. That's it. And you can live your life day to day and allow your body to get agitated without having your mind hijack the situation. And so when I first discovered this, what happened is, um, you know, and you'll hear a little bit of my story, but what happened is after I 
had discovered this thing called the five second rule, which is a little mental trick that I invented to help myself beat my habit of hitting the snooze alarm. Um, once I started sharing the five second rule, um, with the world and the idea spread around the world and people started writing, um, people started to write to me about how they were using the five second rule and the countdown technique going five, four, three, two, one, um, as a starting ritual to interrupt your bad thoughts, to interrupt your bad habits and, and patterns. Um, people started to write, John saying some amazing stuff. I mean, I was using this thing to basically five, four, three, two, one, get out of bed, five, four, three, two, one, put down the bourbon, five, four, three, two, one, lower my tone of voice and be nicer to my husband, five, four, three, two, one, pick up the phone and cold call my way into an interview, five, four, three, two, one, say no to a business deal that doesn't work, five, four, three, two, one, get to the gym. You know, I was kind of using it to self-coach and to propel myself through my excuses. When I shared this thing, I had no idea uh, at that time about the brain science behind it. And we'll get into that in a minute, but, you know, I share this simple idea. People start using it around the world. Um, the original talk I shared it in now has 14 million views. And the crazy part is we've heard from a quarter of a million people in 91 countries who have written to us. Those are, those are just the people that have written to us. And they were writing about crazy stuff. You know, I cured my PTSD, Mel, because I changed my trigger response using 54321. I saved my marriage. I didn't wade into a river and kill myself because I used 54321 to stop myself. Mel, holy cow, I'm able to be sober because I think about sobriety as a five-second decision. And on and on and on. And so five or six years ago, John, as all of this started happening organically, these people writing to me and this idea spreading, I thought, whoa, wait a minute. I wonder if you could use this, Mel. I wonder if I could actually use this to end the biggest, scariest battle of my lifetime, which is curing my anxiety, fundamentally changing the way my mind works. And the answer is, John, yes, you can. And so something happens to you, and you know this because you have shared your story about being burned on 100% of your body and nearly, and having a half of a percent of a chance to freaking live. You have shared that story. And when you start to share your story and it impacts people, you feel a level of responsibility. You feel a profound sense that there is a reason this message is, is spreading. And you and for me and for you, you take that with the utmost of um, sincerity. Mm -hmm. You take the responsibility of it. You really like something changes you when your story starts to help other people. And so I felt like if, if I'm going to be spreading this idea that's changing other people, I need to use this to deal with the scariest thing in my life. And that's my own freaking mind. <laughs> And so five, five or six years ago, I decided I would start to interrupt my brain every single time I worried about something that didn't serve me. And so the second that my thoughts would drift, John, I would go five, four, three, two, one. That's the five second rule. I would interrupt that habit of drifting to the nastiness, to the negative self-talk, to the enemy lines you know, in your own head. And I would yank my thoughts forward to the prefrontal cortex, and I would start to insert things that made me excited or happy. And I'll be darned if one thought at a time, just interrupting my thoughts and saying, I am not allowing myself a five, four, three, two, one. Nope. 
Not thinking about that. Five, four, three, two, one. Nope. Turbulence on an airplane doesn't mean I'm dying. Five, four, three, two, one. Nope. Uh, I'm not taking that that deal because I, you know, I'm not going to ask act desperate in business. Five, four, three, two, one. Nope. You're not going to talk to me like that. Like literally all day long. And something miraculous happened. Within a matter of two weeks, I'm not kidding. My mind drifted to negative stuff two thirds less, literally. If I had spent 90% of my day thinking negative things, I was now spending 20% of my day drifting there. Mel, I'm curious, how and, how frequently were you, when you first find yourselves actually realizing that that voice is yours in your head and that you yeah. could ultimately tell it to be quiet, how shocked were you at how negative that voice was and, and the frequency with which it was negative? Um, I wasn't shocked that I had to use it, no joke, 97 times in one day. I think what started to happen is I realized, whoa, I don't have to think about my kids dying 13 times a day. I don't have to think about, you know, the, the failures 10 times a day. The thing that really impacted me was not how often I was living in a very negative mental state but how easily it is to redirect it. So let's let's talk about the redirection and the reason for that 54321 countdown. Sure. So um the the fast story on the countdown is that I was really struggling about 10 years ago just to get out of bed. Um you know, yeah, I'd taken Zoloft for two decades, but I was in a situation in my life where um my husband's restaurant business was failing. I had just lost my job. Um, we were about to lose everything, our marriage, our life savings, the house, everything. Um, this was 2008. A lot of people have a very, very similar story about what happened to them when the housing mm -hmm. crisis hit in, in the United States. And I just couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do the simple stuff. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't make myself exercise. I couldn't make myself reach out to friends. I couldn't make myself be nice to Chris. I couldn't make myself look for a job. Just just so stuck. And, um, you know, the thing that's interesting is that most of us know what we need to do. At least we know the little things we need to do. We need to eat right. We need to be kind to people. We need to work hard. We need to exercise. We need to think positive. But it's really, really difficult to make yourself do those simple things, particularly when uh, you got a lot of excuses for why you are too tired or why it doesn't matter or all of that. And so um, one night I was watching TV and I saw this rocket ship launching and um, I just had this thought that, gosh, if self-doubt, anxiety and overwhelm could enter my mind within five seconds of that alarm ringing, I wonder if my feet hit the floor first, if I could actually beat my excuses. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I move faster than the anxiety and overwhelm hit. I wonder if I could change. And so I decided I would launch myself out of bed just like NASA launches a rocket. So the next morning, the alarm goes off. That's what happened. And all of a sudden, I could feel the anxiety and overwhelm and that cloud kind of coming into my mind as I thought about the day and our problems and how overwhelming it felt. And I felt myself reaching for the snooze button. But then I started counting like NASA does, five, four, three, two, one, and something weird happened. I actually stood up, 
And the next morning, the alarm went off and I could feel the overwhelm and self-doubt kind of coming into my mind. And I started counting backwards again, five, four, three, two, one. And a funny thing happened. I stood up and it happened and I used it the next morning and the next morning and the next morning. And then I noticed something that nobody talks about. And it is the most important thing to see if you really want to improve anything. And that is that there is a very distinct gap between your instincts and impulse that will change your life and the excuses that stop you. Mm. And that gap is about five seconds long. And the gap is everywhere. It's there when the alarm goes off, that's what happens. There's a five second gap that opens up and your excuses will be there within five seconds or you will move within five seconds. If you're sitting in a meeting and you have this impulse to speak up, that gap is there and you'll either speak up within five seconds or your excuses will, will talk you into silencing yourself. You'll, that gap is there with intimacy in your relationships, the impulse to connect with somebody, to have a deeper conversation, to walk over to somebody and introduce yourself. That gap is right there, and you'll either start walking or start speaking within five seconds, or you will think and talk yourself out of it. It's there with exercise. It's there with cold calling. It's there with, you know, for people that are in direct selling. This five-second gap will define whether or not you're successful in your business because your business is all about talking about your business. And most of us are busy thinking about why we shouldn't. And so when you start to realize that your whole life, and I mean this, your whole life, even your relationship with God, because your ability to, to have faith and to hear those moments where, you know, your faith is speaking to you, you either listen to it and have the courage to believe in it within five seconds, or you will start doubting within five seconds. Like it is everything, John. So Mel, and what's I, I would imagine that there are listeners right now, poolside, working out, driving in the bus, wherever they're listening to the podcast, thinking, you know what? I'm glad this has worked for Mel, but she... She's bright. She's more driven than I am. She went to law school. She has this incredible drive and, and work ethic that I don't. So for those of us seated back right now thinking, uh, it, it won't work for me. I'm glad it's working for her and others, but it won't work for me. What, what would you say to them? You're wrong. <laughs> You're absolutely wrong. And the reason why I can say that, and you can dismiss me as an arrogant, annoying person. That's totally fine. But I think there's a reason why you're listening to this. And I think the reason why you're listening to this is because you want more and you think that in order to have more out of your life, in order to be happier and more satisfied, that you got to do big things. That is wrong. That is totally wrong. The way that you change your life and you discover the power that is inside you is you develop the clarity to hear what is inside you and you develop the skill of courage, which is the ability to try to listen to it when normally your excuses would stop you. And the reason why I can tell you it will work for you is not because it works for me, but because it is working for millions of people around the world. How do I know that? Because we have heard from them, because we have videos of them, because I am in front of almost half a million people a year and we get the feedback. And what most of us don't believe is that it actually is so simple. Mm-hmm. that you know what to do. You deserve to be happy. 
for anybody that says, well, how do I, how can I trust myself if I've been in a string of bad relationships? Here's what I say to you. The reason it's not an issue of trust, it's an issue of courage. You see, if you look back on every terrible relationship you've ever been in, you knew way before you got out, you knew your heart, your soul was telling you, this is not the person. This is not how I should be treated. You knew. The problem is every time your heart spoke up and that five second gap opened up, instead of saying, guess what? This doesn't work for me. Or you can't talk to me like that. Or I deserve more. I'm leaving. Or this isn't going to continue unless we go to therapy. Instead of saying what you knew, mm-hmm. you, 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 you let the five seconds go by and the excuses filled your head and you stayed and you said nothing. Well, you're, you're, I'm not, you're big into courage and action. Why do you think it is that so many of us uh, need to be taught that? Like, why is this not just innate? And are we not more capable uh, to move forward, to take action when you hear that little voice to run? I'll tell you, uh, my, one of my main theories is because of primary school and the fact that we do not go to schools that encourage failure that encourage trying, that encourage and reward people for resiliency. We grade everybody on a bell curve. We have standardized tests. You get applauded if you say the right answer. And so I think, you know, if you go into a classroom in elementary school and you say, okay, who's an artist? Everybody will raise their hand because everybody's drawing. By the time you get to fifth grade, who here's an artist? There'll be one kid that raises their hands. We basically educated out of each other, and it's really sad. And the other thing that happens is that, you know, in our family environments, it becomes very clear growing up that in order to not piss off mom or dad, you got to behave a certain way. And so all of us learn how to be manipulative, how to withhold, how to um, play games so that we don't disappoint somebody. And it begins with our parents. Mm. Not that our parents are doing anything wrong. I mean, I'm sure it's happening with it's happening with my kids too right now. And so, you know, I think that that what happens is you learn strategies as a kid to survive school or to not disappoint or upset your parents. And you develop these strategies at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You know, oh, well, you know, I'm not the most popular, so I'll be the funny one. Or I'm fat and nobody likes me, so I'm, you know, woe is me. Or, you know, my mom's always disappointed and I'm never good enough for her. And so you develop all these stories and strategies about what's happening to you as a kid. And they may be true and they probably even work for you, which is why we develop strategies. You know, like for example, I I recently coached a woman on this new talk show that we've done with Audible and Amazon who um, was trying to quit smoking. And what she, what was interesting is that she, when we, when I asked her, well, when did you first kind of develop a habit of quitting things? She could trace it back to fourth grade. And being the biggest gal on the baton twirling troupe and being afraid to be in a leotard with her butt hanging out in front of her entire school. And she quit. And her parents let her and her teacher or her coach tried to talk her out of it. Um, and they let her quit. 
they didn't make her face the thing that scared her. And what happened is she she realized as a fourth grader, you don't do this consciously, you do it subconsciously. She realized, wow, wait a minute, quitting works. So every time I get nervous in life, every time I get worried about my ability to do something, I can just quit and then I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And the problem is she's now a 40 year old woman who doesn't start anything. Mm. Not starting has become her form of quitting. And the other thing that she does is smoking. Every time she takes a smoking break, she smokes a pack and a half a day. Every single time she takes a smoking break, it's her way to quit life. Mm. And so did she call that out? Did she call that out or are you? No, I did. Okay. So you called that out for her. It's actually the first coaching session in this new show that we've just launched last week uh, with Audible called Kick-Ass. It was the number one new release and it's eight private coaching sessions with people around the world. And it ranges from this woman, Kim, who's the first episode to a former NFL player who went bankrupt and is now building a business to a a Mm -hmm. preacher's wife who thought she wanted to lose weight, but the real issue is that she's a raging narcissist and it's killing her marriage. And she doesn't want to lose weight because if she were to lose weight, she wouldn't be the biggest one in the room. I'm going to ask a pivoting question. Mel, when you are on the microphone or in a coaching session or in front of an audience, are you ever concerned that the moment is about to be too big for you? That there's about to be a phone call in from a preacher's wife and you're just ill-equipped to actually handle it appropriately? Nope. Absolutely not. Okay, and here's so, why. Yeah, give us it. <laughs> because you can hear the patterns that people are stuck in if you listen. All you have to do is ask somebody, what is it that you want? You know, where are you not satisfied in your life? What is it that you're really trying to change? And now tell me what you do every single day. Tell me about your routine. And what you'll hear is you will hear somebody that has aspirations that do not line up with what we want. And so they're stuck in this void between the things that they aspire to have happen and the things that they're actually doing day to day that take them literally in the opposite direction. And when you start to point that out to people, then you ask a very pivotal question. We should never be asking people, what's wrong with you? What we should be asking people is, What happened to you? Mm -hmm. What happened to you? Because we are all going through life, surviving and succeeding and making up stories about what happened. And the interesting thing about this woman that came in saying she wanted to lose weight is that she said that the reason why she's heavy is because she was sexually abused when she was in fourth grade Uh, by an older kid, just like me, and that she got heavy right after that because she started getting bullied and because she didn't want anyone to touch her. That makes perfect sense, and that is the story for a lot of sexual abuse survivors. But something didn't make sense to me. And what didn't make sense to me is here I had this woman in front of me saying she really wanted to lose weight. She really wanted to lose weight, And, and lovely woman, and smart, and capable, and had lost the weight before. And I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. And I asked her, I said, do you really want to lose the weight? Because I'm not buying it. And she said, of course I do. And I said, okay, well, tell me what life would look like if you were 150 pounds. And she went, and I said, well, what just happened? She said, well, if I were 150 pounds, I'd be just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. 
And then she goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I said, you don't want to lose the weight at all because the weight is what gives you the attention that you want. And then it all unwound from there. And what we discovered is that no one believed her when she went home and said that she had been abused. And the weight and the temper tantrum throwing became a way to get attention because no one in her family was paying attention to what this kid was going through. And guess what? It worked. The bigger she got, the more worried her parents got. The louder the tantrums, the more she got what she wanted. She got the attention. And now she's a 33-year-old lovely human being that throws tantrum tantrums and has no idea why. And the reason why she's doing it is because it's something she's been doing since she was eight. Mm. But now it's time to change it because it's going to wreck her marriage. has nothing to do with weight, by the way. So, Mel, whether we are struggling with self-confidence, doubt, uh, weight, smoking, whatever it may be, the strategy you're talking about, we just spend another 30 seconds unpacking it so we can really have a clear roadmap to step into it. Yeah, you got it. So it's called the five-second rule. And here's what you need to know. Uh, every one of us is just a collection of habits. Uh, we, the, the experts estimate that 50% of the things that you do, say, or think are just habits. And habits are nothing more than patterns that get encoded in our brains. And so... The thing about habits is once they get encoded in your brain, anything in your environment can trigger you to then repeat the pattern. So I'm going to give you an example. So for a lot of people, a lot of people will come home from work and be like, oh, it's five o'clock somewhere, time for a drink. The time of day is triggering the pattern of having a drink. For people that are smokers, A lot of times certain songs or being around certain people or certain smells or right after breakfast or driving in the car, these these things that you're doing or people that you're around or or sensory experiences trigger the pattern in your brain to start of grabbing a smoke. Same is true with your thinking patterns. There are people that you see that you automatically feel more insecure around. Because those people are triggering patterns of thinking. Same thing is true about um, confidence. There are Mm -hmm. people in your life that you feel more empowered around. They're triggering different patterns. And so what you can use the five-second rule for is the five-second rule, what I've now learned, is a very powerful form of metacognition. That is a fancy word that means brain trick. You can outsmart your own mind if you want to. You can use the five-second rule as a starting ritual to interrupt the patterns that have been encoded over time in your basal ganglia and draw your focus, five, four, three, two, one. When you hit one, your prefrontal cortex will be ready and active and ready to help you change. Your prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain, John, that is active on functional MRIs when you are acting with courage, when you're learning new behavior, when you're doing any kind of strategic thinking, it's the part of the brain that helps you achieve your goals and helps you change. And so what I created that morning, five, four, three, two, one, when I launched myself out of bed, was a trick or a tool, whatever you want to call it, a simple one, that will help make changing behavior easy. So the way that you're going to use it is list all the patterns that don't work for you. Is it thinking you're unworthy? Is it blowing off the gym? Is it snapping at your kids? What is it? 
And then is it not making the calls on your chicken list? If you have a direct selling business, you know, you got all these calls you need to make. Oop, you think about it, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to do is you're going to write down all the things or try one thing, just one thing. You're going to write down one thing that you're going to work on changing. When it comes time to do it, what you're going to notice is that window. You're going to know it's time to go to the gym. You're going to see your hesitation open up. You're going to feel the excuses coming, and then you're going to count backwards. Now, counting backwards is critical. Do not count up because it will not work. You have to count backwards, five, four, three, two, one. You can just count to yourself. If you're around other people, five, four, three, two, one might make them think you're weird. So yes. just kind of do it to I yourself, say do it anyway. five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, do it anyway. It's totally fine. And um, then move. It's really that simple. Five, four, three, two, one. The second you start counting, you've actually made the decision to not listen to your excuses. By the time you hit one, your prefrontal cortex, the focus is there. Now you're primed to move. And so you'll be shocked, 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 shocked at how effective it is. In fact, the fastest way to try it is try it tomorrow morning. Mm. Set your alarm 15 minutes earlier than you normally get up. When the alarm goes off, you're going to immediately groan and you're not going to feel like getting up and your bed's going to be cozy and you're going to say that you're tired. Just go five, four, three, two, one and push yourself to stand up and then start to notice where else in your day do you see this moment where you know what to do, but you hesitate? Is it with eating? Is it with drinking? Is it speaking up at work? Is it procrastinating? Like you see yourself doing it and you let yourself do it or do you go five, four, three, two, one and stop yourself? Well, part of the reason I love your work, it's its a, a whole lot of reasons. One is you make it seem so simple and actionable, which is awesome and rare. That's one reason. Secondly, I, I think you realize how remarkably blessed, like shockingly fortunate you are to be here and where you are. And part of your mission is to remind the rest of us of that same truth. You throw out a stat frequently, one in four trillion. What does that mean to you? Well, one in four trillion is a stat that I read 10 years ago. Um, and it is a stat that some scientists came up with calculating the odds that you are born. So if you think about the odds of just, and I think he was even talking about it in terms of the sexual act, the odds of it happening, the right sperm hitting the egg it actually going all the way to, um, you know, a full uh, term pregnancy and, a, and, you know, being born, the uniqueness of your DNA. So beyond just even it happening, the moment that it happened, the second that it happened with the sperm that it happened with, with your two parents, and then you go all the way through the odds of it coming to full term and you being born. And then you think about the uniqueness of your DNA and how one tiny little change in that DNA sequencing would have had you be a different person. The odds of you being you, who you are with your DNA structure, born to who you were born to on the day and the moment that you were born, the odds of you being you, one and 400 trillion. Mm. And when you understand that you are that unique, that the odds are actually not in your favor of even being here as the person that you are. And you start to realize that you are a miracle and that you were born for a reason. Then you can start to understand, or at least I do, that there is something to be done with your life other than torturing yourself mentally. 
perfect. <laughs> you also love a four-letter word that I don't think we're allowed to say on air, but we're going we're gonna to do this anyway. Begins with an huh. F. And uh, it is fine, lady. You hate the word fine. Tell us why. Well, um, I don't know. I think it's a throwaway word, honestly. Um, I, 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 I don't think that everybody needs to be happy all the time. And in fact, one of the hardest things for me as a parent, my husband and I, is understanding that if you have kids, particularly kids that have some level of anxiety, that the main way that you help your kids is by coaching them through facing the thing that scares them to death, mm-hmm. coddling them, rescuing them, accommodating them. Um, it doesn't work in the long term. And you're not teaching them the critical skills of understanding that you can be nervous about something and that's normal, but letting it stop you is a choice. Mm. That you can be afraid and that's normal, but letting it stop you is a choice. And your kids will learn that hopefully at some point in their life, but they can learn it from you now as they have those normal fears of throwing up or sleepovers or how to handle a situation at school, coaching your kids to understand that you can be nervous and that's normal, but letting it stop you is a choice is life-changing. And you can use a bunch of tools that we talk about in the five second rule book, like if then planning to help them come up with Mm -hmm. plan B, which will calm down their anxiety um, and give them coping and critical thinking skills. But so the word fine to me is a throwaway because it means that you're either not acknowledging the horrendous thing that's going on beneath the surface or you're not present and grateful for the fact that you're above ground today. And I don't expect everybody to be happy all the time. I really don't. And I think it's it's ludicrous. It's 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 impossible. And I don't even think about happiness that much. I think more about something deeper, which is contentment and being present. And if you are present day to day, then chances are you're not really fine. You're either in a, you're either dealing with something and the fastest way to deal with something, John, is to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It has been startling and so affirming to go into every major fortune 500 company around audiences, as you know, cause you do this for a living that range from stadiums full of people that are consultants for direct selling companies to engineers, to machinists, to franchisees, to people that are members of, you know, associations in, uh, tool and die. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what education you have or you don't. At the end of the day, we are all exactly the same. And the thing that will rob you of all the joy and opportunity in your life is how you think, whether or not you allow yourself to spend and waste your precious lifetime worrying, living in the what ifs and the what could go wrong instead of grounding yourself in the day-to-day and being present and being grateful for the good, for the bad, for whatever it is that is, 
and understanding that when you realize that through five second decisions and through managing this gap between what's happening to you and your reaction to it, you actually hold the answer to changing the quality of your life. And so it's always an incredible reminder when I go and speak to audiences that we're all just the same. We really are. I don't care if you have a suit on or a pair of dungarees. We are all the same. Mel, you you are a Kansas City girl, uh, grew up in Michigan, <clears throat> abused at age four uh, in fourth grade, anxiety riddled uh, for decades, Zoloft for 20 years, struggling with raising kids. When you think of the woman you've grown into and the marriage that you have and the work that you do and the impact that you have today, summarize how you feel about it. Because I, I would imagine looking backwards, it is shocking to think that that little KC girl has grown into this woman living outside of Boston, living the life you live. Um, I'm proud. I'm really proud of the work that I've done on myself in the last five years alone. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people, John, talk about how they're trying to discover the real me, right? Oh, you'll find the real you. You're going to do find the real this. And I have a very different perspective, and that is that you're always the real you. You know, when, when I was anxiety-ridden, that was the real me. When I cheated on my boyfriends, that was the real me. When I had a drinking problem, that was a real me. When I was the world's worst wife and I blew off exercise and I snapped at Chris and I was short-tempered with the kids, that was the real me. And there's something powerful that happens for me anyway when I embrace the things that I did that I'm not proud of. Mm -hmm. And when I say that that was the real me with anxiety, that was the real me with alcoholism, that was the real me, you know, just being a narcissist. And then you can understand something. You can actually change and start a new chapter at any moment. It just takes one decision. In fact, I believe that we're all one decision away from a totally different life. The fact is, I would not have the success that I have, the reach that I have, the um, wisdom that I have, if I hadn't made one decision 10 years ago. And that was to 54321, get out of bed. And I had every reason not to. But had I not done that, there, none of this would happen. So you are one decision away from that next chapter starting, whether that one decision is to not drink or that one decision is to cure your anxiety or that one decision is to no longer allow yourself to think you are unworthy or that one decision is to change who you're being in your marriage or that one decision is to get out of this marriage because you're with somebody that is abusive emotionally or physically to you. So you are one decision away from a totally different life. And the thing that I am so proud of is the work that I've done on myself in the last five years. And here's the other thing, John, is that I know that who I am right now, it's, it's, it's the right person. It's the real me for right now. But in order to continue to seize the opportunity and joy and happiness in my life, I'm going to have to continue to change. I will. The, the parent I am right now to a 19, 17, and 13-year-old 
is very different than the parent I'm going to become when I have a 29, 27, and 23-year-old. The woman that I am right now as the CEO of two multi-million dollar companies, a massive speaking business, a publishing imprint, a new talk show, and online courses reaching 20 million people, the woman I am today, I'm going to have to be very different five years from now when we're reaching 100 million people a month and when Mm -hmm. we have a daily talk show and when um, our youngest is heading off to college in order to be effective and be present and to evolve as a leader. The one thing that is true of all of us is that everything is changing around us and you can't control that, but you can absolutely control what you think and what you do. You can respond instead of react and you can make a decision today to start an entirely new chapter and evolve into the next real you. Mel Robbins, it's a, an awesome way to begin the wrap-up. We have had the honor of, of you know, almost 100 guests at this point on our Live Inspired channel. We're grateful for your uh, your time, and I have seven questions we ask every guest. So question number one for Mel Robbins today is, what is the best book you have ever read? Oh, wow. I don't know. <laughs> well, my favorite. It's okay to say book, the five second rule. You can brag on yourself <laughs> no, if you no, want. No, 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 because I haven't read it. Um, <laughs> I wrote it. Uh, or I should say I dictated it because I have dyslexia. So it's very hard for me to sit and write. Um, well, one of my favorite books of all time is The Alchemist. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, but I'm a real, like, I love the Dan Brown stuff. I love page turners. I love the girl with the dragon tattoo. I love any kind of can't put it down twist and turn Mm -hmm. book. But I would say my single kind of most impactful book is The Alchemist. What's one positive characteristic, one trait, Mel, that you possessed as a child, which you wish you still exhibited it as boldly, as vibrantly today? Oh, man. I know. Take a Um, big swig of the coffee. Let's go. I was a climber. So I have, I I was, I would scale the water tower. I was a super big daredevil when I was little and I am not that way anymore. I actually kind of have a little bit of vertigo and standing next to a ledge is scary, but no, I was a huge daredevil and I'm a little bit risk averse in terms of physical stuff now. Well, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a picture perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be sitting on that bench with? Um, Oprah Winfrey. What would you ask her? First question out of the box. What do you, what, what's your opening shot across the bow at Oprah Winfrey? If you could tell everybody, if, if you could, hold on, let me think about this. Um, if there was just one thing that you wanted every human being to know about life, what is it? <laughs> And now switching spots, what's Oprah's answer back to you? I have no idea, (laughs) which is why I want to hear the answer. No, that might be her answer too. So uh, you you may have just crushed the answer. All right. So I got, I got, I I think I knew, I think I do know what her answer might be. Go for it. I think she would say it is so simple. 
there's a story that she tells about a little boy who um there's a she was a guest that she interviewed and and uh the mom was on and the little boy was struggling with i don't know what horrendous disease and the mom came back on the show after her son had died and described the moments when he died and he was in her arms and he just kept saying mom it is just so simple life is just so simple you know the things that are important are so simple and it's true it really is true and i i guess that's why i love the five second rule so much because it is so simple Mm -hmm. and we have so overcomplicated everything by the way that we think then I, you may have just answered my next question, but here it is anyway. What is the best advice that you've ever received? Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> it is so I swear, cause I don't Because honestly, I don't think I made it up. I think that it was one of those divine moments where I was picked to be a messenger. Because let's be honest, it's the dumbest idea in the world. <laughs> Your words, Mel, not mine. I would never, I would never belittle you in those words, but... Uh... There are there are the cynics in the room that would say that, and uh, I well, think they, they're proof, welcome to it, and they, they, they are. and that's why you know what, John, that's why I was picked to deliver the message, right because I am fearless and I'm the world's biggest cynic, and that's why I did all the research on the planet to shove the science in everybody's face that doesn't believe it, so that it is undeniable that you change your life five seconds at a time. Mel, what would you tell your twenty year old self? Uh, girl, go get some Zoloft. <laughs> <laughs> Why wait one year? Let's do this now. Dang it. Correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Question number seven, Mel Robbins. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one, one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Um, I think just five, four, three, two, one, go. Mel Robbins, you are indeed one in 400 trillion, at least. I think they may break <laughs> broken the mold with you. And uh, you have reminded all of us that we are one decision away from becoming an even better version of ourselves. So true. Thank you for this time, Ellen. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you, John. My friends, that was Mel Robbins. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio studio.